The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 58, to the chief musician, set to do not destroy, a michtam of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? No, in heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that may not see the sun. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. Okay, here we go. We are uh, now in our next Doctrine sermon. It's entitled Jesus Christ, the God Man. This is part three God's atoning sacrifice for sin. And I'm going to take you to Leviticus chapter 16. And we're just going to read that because that is uh, the uh, Day of Atonement passage. And we're going to read the entire passage. But to get ready for that this particular week, I started watching The Passion of the Christ. I finished it last night at about eight o'clock took me, what, three or four days to get through, and uh, it's very brutal. I The first time I watched it, I cried all the way through it. This time, I cried for about 10 minutes in one particular part where he's walking with the cross towards the hill, and uh, his mother comes up to him. She breaks through, and, and he's just beaten to a pulp, and he says to her, Mother, I make all things new. I can't take that. I'm telling you, what he went through for us... And that's included in what we're looking at here today. And we needed to do the previous two sermons to understand what we're going to see today. But let's go to Leviticus 16 and read about it. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. Now, before I go on, every single thing that we read here, the bull, the goat, this and that, everything, each and everything, the person that takes the goat out in the wilderness, every one of those things pictures Christ. If you want to see that, go watch the two or three sermons that we did on Leviticus 16. Everything we're reading about in detail pictures the person of Christ. We'll go on. I think I'm in verse 4. He shall put the holy linen tunic 
and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash. That's his humanity. And with the linen turban, he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. The high priest must offer for himself because he has his own sins. We'll see that in the sermon today. And then he sacrifices for the people, okay? The bull pictures him, all right? Right on the first page of the Bible, Bereshit bara Elohim et, that middle word, the fourth word, bara Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. The middle word is Aleph and Tav. The pictograph of the Aleph is a bull. The pictograph of the Tav is a cross. The bull on the cross is right there in the first sentence of the Bible. This is what's picturing right here for the high priest. We'll go ahead and go on. He'll offer the bull as a sin offering for which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat, the Azazel in Hebrew. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. He is the high priest. Jesus Christ is the high priest. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. The incense pictures Christ. If you go back and do the study on that, every detail of this points to Christ. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with, the, with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side and before the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Christ is our sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Even the tabernacle of meeting is defiled because of our sins. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. Jesus Christ alone went behind the veil to take care of our sin debt. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel." And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all of what you and I have done in this world, in this world full of sin and the sin that we have heaped up in our own lives. He was to confess that over this goat, all right, concerning all the sins 
putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. That suitable man is Christ. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off his linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, the high priestly garments, come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people picturing Christ and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar picturing Christ. And he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe in water, his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skin, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. Then the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar. Then he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Every detail of that feast is fulfilled in Christ. You are taught by uh, countless teachers in Christendom that the first four feasts of the Lord were fulfilled in Christ's first advent, and that the final three feasts of the Lord will be fulfilled when he comes back again. That is a heretical statement. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of Moses. If he did not fulfill the three final feasts of the Lord, then he is not the Messiah. And the law is not fulfilled, and we are still debtors to the entire law. All of the feasts are fulfilled in Christ. If you don't have that right, please go watch the Leviticus 23 feasts and the Day of Atonement sermons that I just told you about, and they will clear up your bad doctrine. It is highly important that you understand this. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the law, and the law is finished. As we saw on the uh, movie last night when he said that it is finished and he put down his head and he died there on the cross of Calvary. Okay? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. If you missed the sermons that covered this passage in Leviticus 16, it would be of great benefit to you to see how Christ Jesus fulfilled every single detail of the feast in his work leading up to and culminating in the cross. Today, we will learn about what that means for us as his people. We have learned from the previous two sermons that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully God. In his humanity, he is uncreated except as is incidental to the act of creation, meaning the initial act of creation. His humanity descends from Adam through Abraham, through David, and so on. Of his humanity, Paul says in Colossians 1 that in Christ Jesus we have redemption through his blood. He also says that he is the firstborn from the dead. 
It is Sunday morning and normally it is not a day to take a test, but let's try it anyway. Question one, does God have blood? No. Two, can God die? See, you get an A plus already. As Jesus Christ's earthly body had blood, something which is created, and as Jesus Christ died, something that cannot happen to God, then Jesus Christ is? Amen. Amen. Yes, correct. He is a human. In theology, one plus one will always equal two. In his deity, Paul says in Colossians 1 that he is the image of the invisible God, and that by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. Further, that he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Logically, thinking through these few words from Paul, it is perfectly evident that Jesus Christ is God. The Greek word translated as image signifies a mirror-like representation. It is a direct correspondence to something. The meaning then is that Jesus Christ is the supreme expression of God. As God is infinite, and as Jesus Christ is the supreme expression of an infinite, then he must be God, because only God is infinite. Further, one, if he existed before all things, and all things other than God are created, then he is God. Two, as he is the creator of all things, then he is God. And three, as all things continue to be sustained and held together by him, then he is God. One plus one will always equal two in theology when it is properly handled. Jesus Christ is fully human, and yet he is fully God, nothing less. Thus, Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is not God who is a finite human, a logical contradiction. Instead, he is a human who is also God. Two natures which never overlap and which never separate. There is no separation between them. For fallen man, there is a reason why Christ, the God-man, had to come. That reason branches out in both directions. His humanity is necessary for man's atonement, but his deity is also necessary for man's atonement. Only with an understanding of this dual nature of Jesus Christ can what he came to do be fully understood. Understanding this, at least in a limited way, will be our goal today. Our text verse comes from Colossians chapter 1. It's verses 19 through 22. For it pleased the Father that in him, meaning Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. After Paul proclaimed both Christ's humanity and his deity, he speaks of reconciliation and peace instead of alienation. He says that this came about through the blood of his cross. The implication is that without the blood, there would be no reconciliation, but rather enmity. And there would be no peace, but rather there would be strife. What Paul describes then is the process of atonement. The word atonement in its simplest form signifies a covering. It comes from the Hebrew verb kafar, which means exactly that, 
For example, the first of its 104 occurrences is found in Genesis 6, verse 1. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover, kafar it inside and outside with pitch. A very high stress is placed upon this word in Leviticus and in particular in Leviticus 16, which details the Day of Atonement, which occurred every year in Israel. In a covering, there is a pacifying action, and in that there is realized a satisfaction or propitiation. Christ is our atonement, and the feast is fulfilled in him. I mentioned to you a minute ago that to say otherwise is to speak heresy. He is the fulfillment of these feasts, and there are no feasts to be yet fulfilled in any way, shape, or form through Jesus Christ. In this, one can see that something is exposed, and it is an offense. In covering that which is exposed, the one who is offended is pacified, and there is a return to a propitious, meaning a happy, relationship. It is a favorable, benevolent relationship which is then realized. Today, we will look into the atonement of man's sin and why it was needed. We will also look into how that is accomplished by God and why it could only be through Jesus Christ who is the God-man. It could not have come about without Christ being both God and man. That is what the Bible teaches, and that is what we shall see revealed today. The biblical doctrine known as atonement is a marvelous part of God's superior word. And so let's turn to that word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the offering and the place of offering. The first implied atonement or covering which is found in the Bible, though the term is not used, is seen in Genesis chapter 3. The man and his wife offended God. The harmony which existed was destroyed and a curse came upon them. It says in that account that even before the curse came, however, that the man and the woman realized their transgression and their fallen state. This is seen with the words, and they knew they were naked. In order to hide their nakedness, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. A knowledge they previously lacked now belonged to them. They were unashamed, and suddenly they were ashamed. To correct the matter, they covered themselves, but the record is specific. They didn't just use leaves to do so, they used te'ena, or fig leaves. From this point on, the fig takes on a particular meaning in Scripture based on what is seen right here. The fig signifies a spiritual connection to God or the lack of it. This is seen, for example, in the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 11. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Jesus was making a theological point concerning the place where he had left the day before and where he immediately returned to the next day, meaning the temple. Jesus' cursing of the fig tree was a parable of the ending of the temple rites and the law of Moses as God's means of restoration with him. The spiritual connection of the law was to be severed. A lot of people say the fig tree symbolizes Israel. That is incorrect. It symbolizes a spiritual connection between God and man. He was taking us back to Eden with this parable. The man and the woman had tried to make a spiritual reconnection through the leaves of the fig 
to what they had lost, but it was too late. God rejected that. He cursed the serpent, the woman, and the man. Death entered the world through the act, and then came the judgment. The spiritual reconnection could not come through their efforts. The fig leaves were insufficient to restore what had been lost. But while standing there, covered in their own unsuitable works, the Lord spoke out words of promise via his curse upon the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The new master of the realm, the serpent, would be defeated through the seed of the woman. It is absolutely certain that this is a promise of the coming Messiah. The man and his woman stood there, dead in their sin and destined to die in their bodies. The Lord had just said to the man that he would return to the dust from which he had been taken. But the promise of life, even from their state of death, was made. We know this because immediately after the pronounced curse upon the man, the very next words say, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The man, though now spiritually dead and destined to die, meaning he lived in a body of death, now named the woman he had been given Chava, or life. Though they stood there before the Lord dead, he had believed the promise that the author of death would be destroyed. If death was destroyed, life would come. The naming of the woman life was an act of faith, and in that act, a covering was given. Genesis 3, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Something died in order to cover their shame. Blood was shed, and it was not done so by the man. Rather, it was the Lord who did it, and thus it was an act of grace. Further, it was the Lord who clothed them. He provided the covering. There was no active participation on their part. They simply received what the Lord had provided. This is what the words indicate. In only a few verses of the first chapters of the Bible, the entire basis and process for the redemption of mankind is given. The theology of what is presented in the Genesis 3 narrative will never be departed from all the way through the rest of the Bible. Man fell. Man has fallen. Man cannot correct the matter. The Lord will intervene. The Lord, through his grace, will accomplish the necessary sacrifice. The Lord will provide the necessary covering for restoration with that sacrifice. And it will be based on a simple act of faith by the man. Everything in Scripture after this point will be based on that notion. And it will support that typology. Atonement is holy an act of the Lord. The atonement mentioned concerning sin, such as that on the Leviticus 16 day of atonement, is simply the word kafar, or atonement. However, in order to be a covering, something needs to be covered. That is where the kaporet, or mercy seat, comes in. The kaporet is literally the propitiatory, or place of propitiation. That word is from the same as kofar, the price of a life, meaning a ransom. Both words are derived from kafar or atonement. Thus, the kafar is that which covers the kaporet or place of propitiation. Just so you understand, propitiation means to make happy, to restore to a state of happiness. To understand the significance of this place of propitiation, 
meaning the typology of its construction, what it is made of, and so on, a full study of the subject is found in our sermons of Exodus, which detail the construction of the sanctuary of the Lord, and which includes all of the implements found within the sanctuary, every single detail of which points to Jesus Christ. To understand the significance of the covering itself, meaning the sacrificial offerings, their blood for atonement, and so on, a detailed study of the subject is found in our sermons of Leviticus and Numbers, which detail these things minutely, every single detail of which points to Jesus Christ. God laid out every detail of what he was going to do in Christ Jesus in advance showing through types and representations so that nothing which occurred when he came should have been a surprise. The theology surrounding his work is detailed and it is complicated, but the concepts which they detail are simple enough to see and to understand on a very basic level. This is so much the case that the heart of what he accomplished is summed up in what is known as the gospel. All of the many books, chapters, and verses, all of the theology found in them, and all of the typology and imagery used in them is summed up in the following words of Paul to those at Corinth. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here it is. The next two verses are the gospel of Jesus Christ. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. In its most basic sense, without even mentioning the words grace, mercy, atonement, propitiation, substitution, expiation, or a hundred other theological terms, all of those things are summed up and can be grasped through this simple gospel message. And that gospel message given by Paul, in which all of the apostles also preached, is then summed up in one verse from the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If one can understand that simple sentence, he can then grasp Paul's fuller explanation of it in the Gospel. The mind grasps what God has done, and in that grasping, if faith is there to accept that gospel message, if it is exercised, atonement is provided, and the salvation is secured. How can this be? It is because it follows the pattern given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Once again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The initiator of the process is God. Salvation is of the Lord. Two, the offering is a gift God gave. Three, the recipient of the gift is the world. Four, the beneficiary of it is general and yet exclusive, whoever. Five, however, it is all-inclusive of that exclusive group. None should perish. Six, and those who are included are so included for one reason. They believe. Seven, the action is fully sufficient and eternal in its effect. None should perish, but have everlasting life. 
Paul's simple gospel further explains Jesus' statement. Christ died. God's giving of his son was not only as a living being, but as a being who would die. He was buried. Christ did not die and then quickly reanimate as if he was given CPR. He was truly dead and his life was completely extinguished. He entered the realm of the dead and remained there long enough to satisfy all doubt that he was truly dead. But after that, he rose again the third day. Death could not hold him. What Jesus proclaimed in John 3:16 is magnificently explained in 1 Corinthians 15, summing up all of the theology of what God would do. We get it, even without further explanation. This is so much the case that children who are just learning to speak understand this message, and it is understood in every language and every culture that it is presented. It is grasped by the humble and by the proud. It is perceived by the idiot and by the scholar. We get it. But what is the theology behind that simplicity that we intuitively get? What does the gospel encompass? In regard to atonement, it means that Christ Jesus is both that which atones and he is the place of atonement. In regard to Christianity, atonement refers to the need for a kafar or a covering for our fallen state. In the reception of this covering, reconciliation between sinful man and the holy God is effected. This reconciliation is possible through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His blood, which is shed, is our kafar, or our atonement. That shed blood of atonement is what then provides the propitiation. The Greek word used to explain this is the word helasmos. It is a noun defined as propitiation. It is an offering to appease or satisfy an angry, offended party. Guess what, people? That is God. God is that offended party, and he is angry at man's sin. This word, helasmos, is only used twice in Scripture. Both times it speaks of Christ's atoning blood that appeases God's wrath in regard to that sin. From 1 John chapter 2, he first says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the helasmos, for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the whole world. And then from 1 John chapter 4, the second and final use of it. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the halasmos, for our sins. Christ is the actual point of propitiation, but more, it is because of his death that this is so. Another noun, hilasterion, which is also found only twice in scripture, explains this. The word means a sin offering. It is that by which the wrath of the angry God is appeased. In type, it was the covering of the ark which was sprinkled with the atoning blood on the day of atonement. Its two uses are found in Romans and in Hebrews from Romans chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a hilasterion, a propitiation by his blood through faith. 
to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it, were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the hilasterion, the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And as can be seen with the use of the two Greek words, hilasmos and hilasterion, which equate directly to the Hebrew words kafar and kaporet, and as we have already noted, Christ Jesus is both that which atones and he is the place of atonement. But this only takes us so far. In our minds, when we receive the gospel, we are making a mental assent that God has done this thing, and that is then received by us. But Paul speaks of another Jesus, implying a false Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He further speaks of a different gospel in Galatians chapter 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Here it is, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. One speaks of a false Jesus, meaning a Jesus who is ineffective in atoning for man's sin. The other speaks of a false gospel, meaning that what is presented cannot save. Together, these call out for a Jesus who is both truly God and truly man, and for a salvation which comes from God alone. An offering for sin to restore the peace. I come to petition my God at his holy altar. Until I do, the enmity will never cease. But knowing he will forgive, in this I will not falter. He, the holy altar, and he is the door and the tent. Christ the Lord is slain. His life ebbs away. In that exchange, God's wrath is spent. Harmony is restored and has come a new day. Innocent and pure, no fault of his own. The death truly touches my heart, but in this exchange I am clearly shown that only through death can there be a new start. Thank God that another has died in my place. In his death I can again look upon God's face. Our second thought today is why the God-man? Why was it necessary for Christ to be a human in order to atone for man's sin? In a previous sermon two weeks ago, it was fully established that Jesus Christ is fully human. He wasn't created as a human in Mary's womb. Rather, he is fully human because Mary is fully human. From her, he received all of the genetic information of his humanity, meaning all of that which came from Adam and those who descended from him and which then was found in Mary. This genetic information includes all of his human characteristics, including the knowledge of good and evil, human weakness, 
skin color, and on and on, just as any human possesses because of being born into a particular genealogy. This was necessary for reasons explained by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The author of Hebrews shows that there must be a necessary connection between the Christ and his people. An angel wouldn't satisfy, nor would an animal. Further, a human body created in Mary's womb without any connection to her humanity would mean that he was not made like his brethren in all ways. The only thing Christ did not possess that we as humans possess is inherited sin, something which comes via the human father. The different categories exclude the possibility that Christ would be anything other than a human being descended from Mary and God being his father. In this, the author uses the verb halaskomai, or to make propitiation, to show that what Christ did in the granting of God's mercy necessitated that a human being be the means of accomplishing the act of atonement. In his atonement, he made propitiation for the people's sins. In his defense of this, he will later, in chapter 10, demonstrate further why this was necessary. But before going there, one must go back to the law itself. The law was given to Israel as the standard which God expected for man. In the doing of the law, man could be expected to live. God says as much explicitly in a verse I have given to you in almost every Bible study and sermon I've ever given. Leviticus 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. In essence, God told his people, all descended from Adam, that if they did the things of the law, they would live. This is my standard in meeting every precept and in failing in none of them, you shall live. In failing to meet the things of the law, life would not come. However, within the law itself, there was given the provision for forgiveness of sin committed under the law through the sacrificial system. The system was highlighted by the annual day of atonement. The implication was that atonement was needed because the law could not be met. Does everybody understand that? He gave the atonement. He says, you must observe this day because he knew that nobody could meet the demands of the law. So obvious was this that the Lord made it explicit in Leviticus chapter 23. And you shall do no work on that same day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall observe this day, and if you do not, your life is forfeit. Atonement was required because the people needed atonement. What is still implied, but which is obvious, is that none had done the things of the law. God was angry at their sin, and they needed their sins covered over. 
With that understanding, chapter 10 of Hebrews explains why only a man could actually atone for the sins of the people. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, meaning Christ, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. First, the provisions of the law could not take away sin. They were a temporary annual reminder to the people of this fact. And more, the reminder was that they were, in fact, under law. But it is the law which brought about the people's infractions. If there's no law, then there would be no law to break. Therefore, in order to atone for the sins of the people, there would need to be a man to free them from the law. But more, there would need to be a man without sin to do so. Otherwise, such a man with sin could not atone for his own sin, much less someone else's. But even more, there would need to be a man born under the law, who was also without sin to do so. That is explained by Paul in the book of Galatians, chapter 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might have the adoption as sons. In order to atone for sin under the law, the man who did so would have to be born under the law. Otherwise, he could not be considered an acceptable atonement nor a suitable place for atonement. This is because the sacrifices of the law are given according to the law, and yet they did not actually take away sin. To resolve this, only someone coming from under the law but who had no sin prior to or during his time under the law could sufficiently and truly atone for sin. The author of Hebrews explains that this someone is Christ Jesus. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. Paul says that the human Christ was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. The author of Hebrews says that this is done by taking away the law which came through the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is taken away in order to establish the new covenant, the Christ Covenant. This could only come about through a man. It could only come about through a man born under the law, and it could only come about through a sinless man. And yet, he must be a man who was born under the law that could not take away sin, meaning he must have been born without sin. And further, he must be a man who lived without sinning under that same law. 
And that premise then leads to the second half of the equation. Why was it necessary for Christ to be fully God in order to atone for man's sin? In the sermon last week, it was altogether established that Jesus Christ is fully God. Of this and understanding what we went over, it is perfectly clear to any who are simply willing to check. But why was this necessary? The answer follows logically with what we just deduced. A man with sin could not atone for the sins of another. Rather, he too would need atonement. But the Bible both implicitly and explicitly teaches that man has inherited sin. The sin of Adam transfers to all of Adam's seed. That is stated explicitly by David in the 51st Psalm. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. It is also taught explicitly by Paul. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, that is Adam. All of us have Adam as our father, right? And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So sin entered through Adam, and all are in Adam. But what about Aaron the high priest? When he and his sons were ordained, didn't the sacrifice for their sins make them sinless before God? Couldn't Aaron just have taken one of his four sons, sacrificed him, and been done with all of the sin of the world from that point on? Their ordination is detailed in Leviticus chapter 8. In that ordination, they are clearly presented as having sacrificed for their own sins. The law was established, and the men who were ordained as priests brought a sacrifice for their sins. This would then make them acceptable to sacrifice for the people of Israel. Once their sins were dealt with, why could they not be an acceptable atonement for the sins of the people? We've already gone through it. The answer is the same as for the people. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The proof of this is found in the verse which immediately followed God's acceptance of the Levitical priesthood, which was in Leviticus 9 verse 24. What happened is the glory of the Lord appeared and he went down and he approved of the sacrifice by consuming it right there in front of all of the people and the people were just giving God the glory. So he accepted the Mosaic sacrifices as his way of having propitiation between him and his people, right? The very next verse, it says, Then Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Nadav and Avihu were not made perfect, nor did they remain perfect. Instead, they died in sin. At the end of that chapter, Moses became angry with Aaron and his remaining two sons because they did not eat the sin offering of the people, and which was required under the law so that they could bear the guilt of the congregation which is what Christ does for us, right? Aaron's reply to him was, if I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? The answer to his question is obvious. No. If the sin offering and the burnt offerings, which were intended to take care of the sins of the priests before they tended to the sins of the congregation were tainted by what occurred, thus meaning they, even the priests, were also tainted, then how could they take on the sin of the people in order to purify them? Aaron's logic was impeccable, and it revealed right at the very beginning of the law how vastly inferior this priesthood is to that of Christ, infinitely so. 
understanding this brings us to understanding the need for Christ's deity. It has been established that Christ had to be a human in order to save the people. However, if he was only a human, he would bear Adam's sin. If he were created as a human, as one person we cited in a previous sermon said, he would have lacked the experiential knowledge of good and evil necessary to deal with man's sin until he gained such knowledge. But that, as we saw in the Genesis account, comes by law. Only by an infraction of the law did man acquire that knowledge. That knowledge, which was obtained by Adam, was passed on to Jesus Christ, but the guilt of it was not. This is, as we saw in the sermon on Christ's humanity, because sin travels from father to son. But Christ had no human father. Rather, his father is God. As all things reproduce after their own kind, we have a human man born of a human woman and born without sin because he had no human father. And yet he possesses the knowledge of good and evil. At the same time, we have the incarnation of God in Christ because he is begotten of the father. He is the God man. Without the deity of Christ, sin would have been involved in the picture somewhere and atonement for man could never have taken place. But with the deity of Christ, we have a perfect man born under the law. Thus, he required no sacrifice for his sin as Aaron did. He also lived under the law without sinning. And thus, he needed no sacrifice for sins as Aaron did. And he died under the law having no sin. And thus, he was the acceptable offering for sin and the acceptable place of offering for sin. He is both the hilasmos, or offering, and he is the hilasterion, or mercy seat, meaning the place of propitiation. This is explained by the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. Also, there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing, but he because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's for this he died once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appointed as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. These things are both logical and expected based on the simple gospel given to us by Paul earlier. We may not think all of this theology through when we accept the gospel of our salvation, but all of it is implied right there. But what is more is that the deity of Christ is not only implied in these truths, it is proven because of them. Christ Jesus died for sins. Christ Jesus was buried in his death. But that was not the end of the story. Christ Jesus rose again. Hallelujah. Proving that he had no sin. If he did have sin, he would have remained right there in the grave. But he did not. He rose Concerning death, Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that it was not possible that he should be held by it. It could only be true if he was without sin. And being without sin, it was impossible that it could be otherwise. 
Thus, the deity of Christ is first an absolute necessity for our atonement, and secondly, absolutely proven through his resurrection. Understanding this, it still has to be noted to sufficiently explain God's process of atonement that Jesus Christ actually did die. We must remember that Christ is both the propitiation for sin and he is the place of propitiation for sin. His blood was given to cover our sin, but our sin was placed upon the place of propitiation, God's mercy seat. In other words, Christ truly did die, and Christ truly did die for sin. But Christ Jesus did not die in sin. Rather, his death was as a substitutionary death for our sin. In this, and because we understand that he is God's mercy seat, we can then fully appreciate what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became our sin and took our judgment upon himself. In exchange, he grants us God's righteousness, because being fully God, he is the possessor of the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the law. We stand justified through Christ's fulfilling of the law. We are granted the righteousness of God in Christ, and we overcome the world and the power of the devil through the actions of our Lord. John explains this in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And that means that he is human and that he is deity. If he is not both of those, you have believed in a false Jesus, as we cited it the earlier, and you have believed a false gospel, and you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. Earlier, we spoke of the shame which Adam and Eve experienced at the fall and their useless attempts to cover that shame with te'ena, or fig leaves. The covering was insufficient, and the guilt remained. They attempted to work their way back into a right spiritual relationship with God, but they failed to do so. After that, Adam demonstrated faith, and in his act of faith, God covered his two wayward children, setting the example of atonement and redemption which has never been deviated from throughout the entire body of Scripture. John confirms that the covering of man is externally granted. It is obtained by being born of God. In that, one overcomes the world. It is through the work of God alone, and it is appropriated by us through an act of faith and nothing more. And in exchange for our shame and nakedness, or for any of our own futile attempts to cover our souls, when we demonstrate faith in what God has done, he carefully tends to us. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Who is he that overcomes? It is the one who trusts in what God has done through Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. And what does God do for you in that act? He grants you white garments of righteousness, his own righteousness in place of your sin. I'll tell you of another heresy which says that there is one gospel to the Jews and one gospel to the Gentiles. 
That's hyperdispensationalism. And I'm going to tell you something. That is as much of a heresy as denying the deity of God. It is a false gospel, and people that believe that will not be saved. People that have taught it may have believed the true gospel at the beginning, and so they're saved. But when you teach a false gospel, you teach a false Jesus, and when you teach a false Jesus, there's no salvation in there. When we go to the projects on Saturday, there's another group of people that walks around, and they knock on doors. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses, and there's either darkness or there's light. And you wonder why for 14 years we have never missed a Saturday, not one Saturday in 14 years, is because it's either darkness or it's light. It's either truth or it's falsehood. That is why we are out there in heat and cold and storms on holidays. It doesn't matter. One of us or two of us or 10 of us is always out there. and We've never missed a Saturday in all of that time. There is a true gospel and there is the true Jesus, the Christ of God. The true gospel is that God has done all that is necessary to save the human soul and that we exclude ourselves from God's promise when we attempt to earn his favor through the law. The true Christ is Jesus, who is both fully man and fully God. As Jesus is God's only begotten son, Jesus is the only Messiah, and he is the only path for atonement, for justification, for sanctification, and for glorification before God. He is both our propitiation and our place of propitiation. He is Jesus. Call on Christ. Receive God's offer of pardon and have your sins atoned for through his precious blood to the glory of God the Father. That's my appeal to you today. I've given you the gospel at least 10 times in this sermon. I'm going to give it to you one more time. You have sinned. You need Jesus. Call on Jesus. That's the gospel, and it can only be appropriated by an act of faith. I don't need to go any further today because you've got the theology behind the simple gospel. Please call on Jesus. Understand that this is God's way. You know what? This is so intricate. It is so complicated that nobody could have put this together. No person would ever. There would have been a missing link. There would have been something that was wrong. But the gospel, as simple as it is, has so much theology behind it that nobody would ever have put it together. I don't care how long they tried, there would have been a catch. But God has done it in his word because he is God. It proves to us that this is the word of God. It proves to us that Jesus is our savior and that he is the only way to be reconciled to God. I'm telling you, there is nobody that would have thought through every single thing, even what we talked to today, and we haven't talked about that much. Okay? It is true. Call on Jesus. I got a closing verse for you. I didn't say our closing verse last week. Skipped right over it. Spent all that time. You know, sometimes thinking of an opening and closing verse takes me 20 minutes. I mean, I, I'm trying to think, what is the perfect set of verses to put in here? And then I forget it. That's so embarrassing. That's because we're doing doctrine sermons and we're not in a regular format where I've got a poem and I've got everything laid out. It's kind of the end just ends. So here we go. Closing verses, Romans 5, 6 through 11. For when we were still without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I watched the Passion last night and he was there begging the Father for forgiveness of the people that were there destroying him. And one guy on the cross next to him says, guess must, why are you mocking him? He didn't do anything wrong. He says, we're getting what we deserve. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, surely I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Think of that. 
All the sin of the world laid upon the sinless Lamb of God for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for what you were willing to do and what Christ was willing to do when he came. It is just astonishing to think of the punishment and pain that he went through to redeem people like us, all of us, filthy in our sins, the things we think and the things we do, and we excuse the little things as if they're nothing when it was a simple little act of eating a forbidden fruit that got us into all of this in the first place. How terrible are our sins if that's the case? And yet you were willing to take all of them upon yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. How thankful we are and how we praise you. May we do so all the days of our life. Lord, just give us enough strength to praise you. And with that, we will be satisfied. Thank you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I got a Maserati here for somebody. We spoke of the fig as signifying a spiritual connection to God. As I said, it does not picture Israel. Where do these words which speak of the fig tree come from? Which book of the Bible? Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. What book of the Bible? It's not the Psalms. It's not Isaiah. What? No, it's not Leviticus. It's not Proverbs. It's not Chronicles. It begins with an A and ends with a K, and it has Habakkuk in the middle. Anybody? Ah, y'all got it. The book of Habakkuk. Yes, it's chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Okay, well, I get to keep my Maserati to drive around this week. Okay, next week we've got salvation by grace alone through faith alone. That'll be our seventh doctrine sermon. I told you that I'm going to pick on some people that you are aware of, that you know what they teach, and I've got to use an example. If you don't want to hear me say something about somebody you may like, I've got to give an example because it's very precise how you present the gospel, and there's, you can get off very quickly. So I'm telling you now that if you don't want to hear that, don't listen, but if you do and you want to know how to avoid that error then listen to the sermon, okay? We get the instruction for the... I know that looks like a watermelon. My mom said I had a watermelon on my head. Um, um, what's his name? Uh, Doug over in Ireland and I were talking yesterday and uh, he was talking about the Irish um, game against the Welsh yesterday. And I said, well, my real name, which most of you know what it is, um, is a Welsh last name, okay? They just dropped off the S at the end. It's a clan of people in Wales and... Uh, uh, that name is a Welsh name. He said, well, Ireland's going to win. And I said, no, the Welsh are going to win. Well, the Irish won, and so I had to wear something green. So that's why we're green today. All right.